Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter number 16. Today was the first day in over three years that we passed an offering plate. We haven't given up taking offerings over that time, but we've been utilizing the offering box in the back. Now, I want to take some time this morning to share with you why I believed it would be a very good thing for us as a church to go back to a biblical tradition. I think it is biblical to include giving as an act of worship. Sometimes we refer to our main services as worship services because one of our goals is to corporately come together and worship the Lord. That's one of our purposes as a church to exist. Not only do we edify each other, not only do we seek to evangelize the lost, but together we seek to exalt God in everything that we do, including when we gather together in a corporate, that is, all cooperating together in one, as one group in that kind of a setting. And so I do believe it's right to refer to it as a worship service, so long as you have the right definition of worship, which seems to be more and more difficult to find. The truth is, everyone is worshiping something. Everyone. Even the person who says there is no God. Even the staunchest atheist who's living an irreverent and an ungodly life. They are actually engaging in worship. Webster's defines worship this way, to adore, to pay divine honors to, to reverence with supreme respect and veneration. Now when you think about worship in that most basic idea, you realize that everyone is indeed worshiping someone or something. If they're not worshiping the true God, well, then they're worshiping a false God of some sort. Sometimes it's the false God that is uh, an idol or something, as our brother Santhosh here reminded us that in the Hindu religion, there are 333 million gods that they worship. Sometimes it's that form of a false God. But then there are those who call themselves atheists or agnostics, humanists that do not believe in a God, yet they are worshiping something because they are paying homage to, they are reverencing supremely, they are adoring their own selves, their own intellect, mankind's own abilities, whatever it might be. And so oftentimes people replace the worship of God with worship of self. Worship then is when you demonstrate your devotion to someone or something, by giving the most and the best of your time and treasure to it. If you want to use that as kind of a working definition, I believe it's helpful to us to realize that worship is not a service, and strictly speaking, it's not a single experience. But worship defines what is most important to you. What do you demonstrate your devotion to? Who do you demonstrate your devotion to? By giving the best of your time and your treasures to that thing, whatever it is. And it's that, that aspect of giving. 
as a part of worship that I want to focus on today. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, we're going to begin by looking at verses 28 and 29. Give unto the Lord, ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Heavenly Father, as we look into Your Word right now, Lord, we beg that you would help us not to hear it and think about it as an intellectual exercise. But Lord, that it would truly penetrate to our very heart and soul. That it would reveal to us whether or not we have been worshiping you properly. And that it would show us, Lord, how we can glorify you with a proper attitude of worship in every moment of every day that we live. God, you have been so good to us. You alone deserve to be glorified. So we humbly ask that you would take our praise and our honor today. And that it truly would magnify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, the idea of giving is so connected with worship that it's hard for us to even imagine a form of worship that doesn't involve some aspect of giving. Even if you think about those who do not believe the Bible, who are not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who worship false gods, how do they worship their false gods? Well, oftentimes they will bring themselves to a temple. They will bring some kind of an offering or a sacrifice or incense or something like that. They will bring money. They will will give prayers. They will go through all of these different outward motions that are in some way a form of giving. And really, if you stop to think about it, every instance of worship involves some aspect of giving. Even those who do not worship the true God understand that. It's like God created us with that basic knowledge as a part of our conscience. Now, those who do not believe in the true God, they, 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 they are engaged in this worship of giving to appease a false god, to earn their favor, but it still shows a basic principle that man has a knowledge that giving is a part of worship. And as Christians, we ought to give as an act of worship to the Lord. We should give our time. We should give our treasure. We should give thanks to God. We should give glory to God. And we should give of our possessions to the Lord. But we do not do it to earn God's favor. This is the important distinction. We give as an act of worship simply to honor the Lord. We don't give expecting God to bless us with great and greater wealth. We should give because the Lord means so much to us. We should bring our tithes and offerings in obedience to the teachings of God's Word and demonstrate that we take God seriously and that He means enough to us that we are 
willing to part with our hard-earned dollars in order to honor Him. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, we find a psalm that was written by King David. The occasion of this psalm was when the ark was brought into Jerusalem. Now we want to take just a minute to kind of look at the backstory here so we understand the context. If we rewind, uh, oh, about 60 years or so, we find that there was a time when the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen by the Philistines. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, it says, The men of uh, Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the Ark of the God and brought it into the house of Menadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the Ark of the Lord. Now, back in 1 Samuel, if you remember the story of Eli the priest and his sons Hophni and Phinehas who were very wicked men, God at that time punished the Israelites by allowing the Philistines to come and oppress them. And as a part of one of those battles, they captured the ark. Now the way they ended up capturing it is the the Israelites decided to use the ark like a good luck charm. They weren't doing so hot in the battle, so somebody said, hey, let's fetch the ark, that'll help us win. And so they brought the ark out, but they were not using it as God intended. To them, it was just a good, it was like a lucky rabbit's foot might be to somebody who believes in that kind of nonsense. And so the Philistines took the ark, and for seven months, it was in, in, in their land. During that time, God plagued the Philistines until finally they said, enough of this, we've got to send this thing back. So they send the ark back, and uh, these men of Kirjath-Jerim come, and they bring it up into the house of this man by the name of Aminadab in the hill. And that's where it stayed for several generations. Now, the ark was significant because it signified the presence of God. There was nothing mystical or magical about the box itself, but the fact that it was a symbol of God's power, God's presence, and God's promises. And so, we fast forward and David becomes king. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 13, just a couple pages back in your Bibles. 1 Chronicles 13... Verse 1, And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds, with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levites, which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us, and let us bring again the ark of our God to us. For we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. And all the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David becomes king, and after a certain period of time, he calls everybody together and says, hey, we need to go get the ark. All the years that Saul was king, we didn't inquire at the ark. Again, the ark was a symbol of God's power and God's presence and God's promises. And if you look at the life of Saul, you find that while he started pretty good, he ended very, very badly. And part of his problem was, is he didn't seek God properly. And that's what David is discussing here when he says that we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. And so everybody agreed, yes, let's get the ark from Kirjath-Jerim, let's bring it up to Jerusalem. David had prepared a special tent, special place for it. And so they go down to fetch it, and their first attempt ends in disaster. 
In verses 9 and 10, when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him because he put his hand to the ark. And there he died before God. You know this story probably how Uzzah, even though he was not authorized to stop the ark, to stabilize it, or even touch the ark, he did it anyway. And some people will say, well, he, he had a, he had, his heart was in the right place. He, he had the right intentions. Yeah, but he still sinned. And God struck him for it. And this made David very afraid. They left the ark there for a few months while they tried to figure out what to do. And, and lo and behold, they went back to the Bible. And they realized, oh, God told us how we're supposed to move this thing. You're supposed to have these staves and only the Levites were supposed to do it. And so they finally got their act together. They went back for the second time to retrieve the ark three months later. And this time, they were able to bring the ark to Jerusalem. There was a huge celebration in honor of the occasion. And David wrote a psalm of praise to God in honor of this great occasion of bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. First Chronicles 16, look with me at verses 8 through 10. Here is David's psalm that he wrote. Give thanks unto the Lord and call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Sing unto Him. Sing psalms unto Him. Talk ye of all His wondrous works. Glory ye in His holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. So this whole occasion was a time of praise to God and a time of worship to the Lord. So we might say it was a praise and worship experience. Not like we associate with today necessarily, but that's what it truly was. And David wrote this psalm to be used on this occasion as they together they worshipped God and gave Him praise for this wonderful um, victory in being able to bring the ark uh, to Jerusalem, to the capital city. Now in this psalm that David wrote, David repeatedly admonished the people to give to the Lord. Look at verse number 8 again. He said, Give thanks unto the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people. Now skip down to verse 28 and 29 once again. Give unto the Lord, ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now look at verses 34 and 35. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. And say ye, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us together and deliver us from the heathen, that we may give thanks to Thy holy name and glory in Thy praise. So multiple times in this psalm of worship, David instructs the people, give. If we're worshiping God, if we're truly worshiping God, then we will give. We will be giving to the Lord because you cannot worship without giving. Some people think worship is a feeling. It's where, you know, you sit in a service and there's emotional music and you just get stirred in your heart and you have this overwhelming feeling about God, that's worship. That is not worship. Sometimes that may accompany worship. But that's not what worship is. Worship is when you demonstrate your devotion to God by giving the best of your time and your treasure. It is when you show God how much He's worth to you. And if God is valuable to you, 
there are at least three things that you will be giving Him. We see these in this psalm. Number one, worship involves giving thanks. Worship involves giving thanks. That is, by the way, the definition of praise. Again, this is something that in in our modern culture, our modern Christianity, a lot of people are confused about. What is praise? Well, praise is when you sing loud and raise your hands. Or or praise is when, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the choir is doing an exceptional job that morning. Or praise is, and there's all of these, these substitutes for what the biblical definition of praise is. Keep your finger in 1 Chronicles 16 and turn to the New Testament book of Hebrews for a moment. I like when I can get definitions directly from the Bible. All right? Webster's Dictionary can be helpful. But when God defines his own terms, that's the best, ter- that's the best definition to use. And here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, God defines his own term. He tells us exactly what praise is. Hebrews 13, verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. Now we... We see in the first half of this verse that this is an instruction that we are to give praise to God just like we would uh, give an offering and a sacrifice like in the Old Testament. They would bring those offerings and those sacrifices. They would present it to the Lord at the temple. We are to present the sacrifice of praise to God and we're to do it continually. But the second half of the verse defines what that means. That is, all right, here comes the definition the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. That is what praise truly is. It's giving God thanks. And worship, true worship, will involve giving thanks to God. Thanks that is not given, is not true gratitude. Some people say, well, I am thankful in my heart. Well, when's the last time you said thank you? When's the last time you gave thanks? You cannot say you are truly grateful if you're not willing to give that thanks. And we can say that we are thankful to God for all that He's blessed us with, and we can say that in my heart I know I'm grateful, but when was the last time that in prayer you said to God, thank you, and you gave thanks? It is amazing. Sometimes if you want to do a little homework on your own, go through the Bible, use an app or pull out an old Strong's Concordance, and, and just study how many times... Giving thanks or thanksgiving is used in Scripture. It's all over the place. Because thanks is supposed to be expressed. Gratitude is supposed to be verbalized. It's supposed to be given. And that's why David said, Give thanks unto the Lord. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, that we may give thanks to thy holy name. If you're worshiping God, truly, you will be giving Him the thank yous that he deserves. That's what praise is. The Bible commands us to give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks. 
For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Give thanks. Not just be thankful. There are commands that says, be ye thankful. But more than that, we're to give that thanks. Psalm 136 verse 1. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good and His mercy endureth forever. You see, this, this idea, well, I, I'm grateful in my heart. I don't, I don't have to say it. God, just, God should just know it. After all, He's omniscient anyway. He knows everything. He knows I'm truly grateful. Let me illustrate it to you this way. About a true event that happened in Jesus' life when He was here on this earth. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 17. One day He encountered ten men who were lepers. And the Lord Jesus Christ healed all ten of them. And when all ten of them realized that they were healed, they left rejoicing and they were going to go and they were going to present themselves at the temple to be declared ceremonially clean so they could enter society once again. And on the way, Luke 17 verse 15 says, One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And you know what? Jesus was astonished. He said, Didn't, weren't there ten of you? Where, where are the other nine? Where are the other nine? They didn't stop for 30 seconds to turn around and say, Thank you. They just kept on going about their merry way. Now I suppose those other nine could have said, Well, I'm, I'm grateful in my heart. And they could have excused it by saying, well, God knows how I really feel. But it was the one who took the time to worship God by giving thanks that is held up to us as an example of true gratitude. If you are worshiping God, you will be giving thanks. And so when we talk about public worship, publicly thanking God for who He is and for what He's done should be a part of that. Sometimes we do that through testimony. Sometimes we do that, many times we do that through the songs that we sing. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. And songs like that are opportunities for us to worship God, to praise the Lord by thanking Him for what He has done. If you're not giving thanks, you're not worshiping biblically. But not only does worship involve giving thanks, number two, it involves giving glory. <clears throat> Excuse me, 1 Chronicles 16, again in verse number 28. Give unto the Lord, ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. What does it mean to give glory to God? Let's, let's really take a minute and think that through. Can you or I add to the actual amount of God's glory? Can we, let me put it this way, can you or I make God more glorious? No, we can't. God is infinitely glorious in His own right, all by Himself, without you or me. He doesn't need us to be infinitely glorious. So when we talk about 
giving glory. It's not the idea that we're adding to God's glory. What does it mean? Well, it simply means that you're pointing out God's glory. You're highlighting it, if you will. It means that you are attributing to God the glory that is already His. Or you can think of it this way. It's giving God the credit He deserves. That's what it means to give God glory. Psalm 29 verse 2 says, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Sound familiar? Give God the glory that is due Him. You see, we do not glorify God because He needs us to prop Him up. We glorify God because He is glorious and we need to recognize it. And others around us need to recognize it. We need to be reminded of how glorious God is. And other people need to be reminded of that. And some people need to learn about it for the first time. And so we give God glory by attributing to Him the honor and the glory that is rightfully His. Revelation chapter 14 describes a scene in heaven saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains, fountains of waters. Notice, again, the connections between giving God glory and worship. When you worship something, you are showing that it is worthy of your devotion. It is worthy of your attention. It is worthy of your adoration. You are attributing it to it, the honor that is rightfully it, whatever that thing is. One definition of to glorify is to enhance God's reputation. It's another way to think of it. It's to cause yourself and others to think better of God than you already do. And listen, our sinful heart tends to forget how wonderful God is. Let's just acknowledge that. Let's just stop right here and acknowledge that fact that we tend to forget how wonderful God is. We go through life and we get distracted by other things. We go through some kind of a a, a hardship and a difficulty maybe and it makes us begin to question and wonder some things about God. And the natural tendency of our sinful heart is to forget how wonderful God is. And so we need to be reminded. We need to first of all remind ourselves. There's a lot of times where you and I just need to have a good sit down, come to Jesus meeting with ourselves and say, look here, okay? I know you think this, this, and this, but that ain't true. Now maybe you don't talk to yourself that way. I talk to myself that way. And sometimes we forget how wonderful God is and we just need to stop and remind ourselves that the Bible says God is good and doeth good. That the Bible says that God so loved the world. That the the Bible says that He is gracious. He is merciful. That He is omnipotent. That He is omniscient. That He is omnipresent. And we just need to stop and we need to remind ourselves how wonderful God is. And other people benefit from that as well. 
part of the reason that we come together on a regular basis is to remind each other who it is that we serve and who it is that we worship and why we do that. It's because He deserves it. And so we give glory to God. We are very careful that we don't take credit for anything that God does. That we give Him all the credit. And since all of our life is supposed to glorify God, all of our life then should be lived in this spirit of worship. Whether therefore you, live, you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. When you sit down for lunch this afternoon, did you know you can eat that lunch to the glory of God? I don't care if you open up a can of beans and have to eat them cold. You can do it to the glory of God. When you go to work tomorrow, you can do it to the glory of God. Everything you do in life ought to be done to the glory of God. And therefore, all of our life should be an opportunity. We should look at it as an opportunity to worship, to show God how much He is worth to us. True worship exalts God. False worship exalts man. Here's a problem of what happens in a lot of places today that's called worship. Instead of exalting God, it exalts people. It exalts preachers. It exalts performers. Let somebody who's very talented at what they do get up and sing a song or play an instrument or have a, a share a talk and people are stirred emotionally and they think, wow, that person really knows how to lead us into worship. If that's the thinking that you have coming away from a worship service, you weren't worshiping God. Because a worship service ought to exalt God and God alone. It ought, everything ought to glorify Him. Worship then is not a performance. Worship is not a production. Now, I do believe that we should do everything decently and in order. I have been in those services where somebody will get up and, you know, they're going to sing the special. And before they sing, the first thing they say is, y'all pray for me, I haven't had a chance to practice this yet. And you might chuckle at that. I've heard it myself on more than one occasion. And listen... I understand sometimes things change in last minute plans. You have to, you know, put something in place. But when that is a pattern in somebody's life that they don't give two seconds preparation to stand before people and minister the truth about God through song, there's a problem. All right? I believe things ought to be done decently and in order and to the best of our ability. But worship is not a performance. It's not a production because it's not about us. It's all about God. The reason that we plan and the reason that we prepare and the reason that we practice is so we do not distract from God's glory. By doing things well, we give people no reason to think about us too much and they can give all of their attention to God. Does that make sense this morning? I believe that whatever measure of talent God has given us, we ought to do our best with it. And I don't believe that you have to be a professional musician, a professional singer in order to minister in a song service. I don't believe that at all. I think, I think that people have a wide range of skills that hopefully they're working to develop, but that they can still use to the glory of God. 
Worship must glorify God or it is not godly worship. We give thanks. We give glory. And finally, number three, we give of our possessions. We give of our treasures. Or if you want to write it down this simply, we give money. Back in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering. What was, what was King David talking about when he said bring an offering? He was talking about stuff. Stuff. In the Old Testament, that could be animals, that could be produce, or that could be cash. If I had time, I'd alliterate that, but we'll just go with it. Bring something. Something physical, something tangible. Bring it. Bring something from your treasure store and give it to God. And worship Him in doing it. Anything that was valuable could be given as an act of worship. You look in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of stuff that people gave. They gave cloth, they gave jewels, they gave money, they gave animals, they gave wood, they gave stones. I mean, they gave all kinds of stuff. And that giving, by giving something that has value, you are demonstrating how much God is worth to you. Saying, God is worth enough to me that I'm going to part from this valuable possession to give it to Him. Just to demonstrate how much He's worth. Now, strictly speaking, God does not need our money. Just like He doesn't need our thanks, He doesn't need us to glorify Him, He doesn't need our money. But to give of our material possessions to God through God's work is a way that we can demonstrate how much He is worth to us. Now, we acknowledge this. Money is not the most important thing in life. But it is important. Have you noticed how expensive it is to exist? Because you have to eat, and you have to live somewhere, and you need clothes. You probably need some kind of a trans transportation. And money is the way that we, that, that we acquire all of those things. For most people, their money is a tangible representation of their time and energy. For most people, that's what it is. Those dollars that may be in your purse, your wallet, or your bank account, that represents your life to a degree because you invested your time and your energy in order to acquire that. And so to part from that is, in a sense, giving a piece of you, a portion of your time and energy. We invest ourselves into our work and we reap the material benefits of that. And that, by the way, is why wealth and worth are so easily confused. You know, the world uses language like this. What's your net worth? And what do they mean by that? Well, how much money do you have in your bank? Because obviously, worth is measured in dollars. That's what the world thinks. You know, that's not true. Let me help you out here this morning. Your worth is not connected to your bank account. Your worth is based upon who God created you to be. You are created in the image of God, and that's why you have intrinsic value. Worth and wealth are not the same thing. Worth cannot be measured by anything material. Jesus 
said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things that he possesseth. But we use those material possessions we have, that wealth, to demonstrate how much something or someone else is worth to us. We do it all the time. Every time we buy something, we are trading money for something else that we think is of equal or perhaps greater value if we get a good deal on it, right? And so we're constantly involved in this trade of giving some of our money that represents our time and energy to acquire something that we feel like is worth it. And because of that, we invest in those things that are most important to us. By and large, that's what we do. We give the most of our time and energy and treasures to the things that mean the most to us, that are most important to us. You will always find your heart and your treasure in the same place, in other words. Jesus put it this way, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now Jesus was not... I don't believe saying that, you know, put your money somewhere and then your heart will follow it. I don't think that's what he was saying. I think what he was saying is, wherever your heart is, your money will naturally follow it. In other words, we can't put money in an offering plate and mistakenly think that that automatically means that, that God is worth much to us. No, some people give, Jesus gave the examples of the Pharisees who gave to be seen of men. Because what was valuable to them? Their reputation, their ego, to be seen of others as giving a lot. And so what Jesus, did Jesus say? They have their reward. They, they gave to be seen, they were seen, people praised them, and so they got what they wanted. You can give in such a manner as that, and it's not true worship. But you cannot truly worship if you are not giving. And so we must set our affections on things above. And then we can cheerfully give to show that God means a lot to us. That we value God highly. And when we stop to think about it, everything that we have came from God in the first place. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above. Everything that you and I possess has been given to us by God. And we are to simply take care of it for a little while while we're here on earth. To be good stewards of it. Worship involves giving. Why? Because God is, if God is worth something to you, you'll be willing to give something to demonstrate that. To show that He's worth something. Let me close by addressing a couple questions. Maybe in the future we'll take time to delve into these a little more deeply. But the question is often asked, well, how much do we have to give? All right, preacher, you're talking about giving. How much? Go ahead. Go ahead and say it. Well, I will tell you that I am a firm believer that biblically the tithe is a great starting point. The tithing began, the first instance of it was actually with Abraham when he gave tithes to Melchizedek. It was included in the Old Testament law as a law they had to uh, abide by. It was affirmed by Jesus when he said, These things ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. And then Paul told Christians to follow the same pattern to fund the work of the Lord in the New Testament as was in the Old Testament. So it's all throughout Scripture that tithe is a minimum. But a better question to ask than how much do I have to give, the better question is how much can I give? And the good news is, some of you are worried about this. The good news is God has not put a limit on how much you can give. If you want to give 15%, give 15%. If you want to give 20%, give 20%. If you want to give whatever percent you want to give, that is between you and the Lord. There's no cap, if you will. 
You be a good steward of what God has given you and you be generous in giving back to the Lord. And do it without grudging. You're not giving to get, you're not giving to ward off some, you know, plague or some punishment from the Lord. You're giving to demonstrate that God is worth something to you. And you do that not to attract attention to yourself. That means it's to be done privately. Is it a sin if someone finds out? No. It's not a sin if someone finds out. We know how much the widow gave. She gave two mites which make a farthing. How do we know that? Jesus told us, okay? But we do it privately. It's not for show, but we do it in as private of a manner as we can so that God gets the glory from it. And when we give our tithes and offerings in our context today, we're not giving to the church. That's the wrong way to look at it. We are giving to God through the church. The church is God's institution for this age in which God is 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 using His people to get the message of the gospel throughout the world. And the church requires funds, financing, to fulfill God's program, to edify believers, evangelize the lost. And that means the practical things, like paying the preacher, but it also means keeping the lights on, maintaining the property that God has provided, helping those who are in need. All of these things are involved as we give to God through the ministry of the local church. Why do we do it? Do we give out of fear that if we don't, God's going to take away the rest of our money? Or do we give because God is truly valuable to us? And we want to show that by giving something back. When we have a true heart of worship, we will give. We will give thanks. We will give glory. We will give of our possessions. Because God means that much to us. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Have you really ever stopped to think about how giving should be an act of worship? That even today as we pass the offering plate, this was an opportunity for you and I to demonstrate how much God is worth to us. Sometimes we give just because it's a habit. Still worse, sometimes we give because we're afraid of what might happen if we don't. But the best attitude and the best way to give is to give because God means so much to us. Are you giving God thanks? Are you giving God glory? Are you giving God of your possessions. He is worth it. Let's give Him what is rightfully due Him. Heavenly Father, You have been so good to us and have taken such good care of us. Most of us in here today enjoy a quality of life that few people in our world even today enjoy and that even fewer throughout history have been able to enjoy. Lord, we have so much stuff, so much more than we actually need. Forgive us for being greedy and selfish with it. Forgive us, Lord, for withholding from you what we could give 
to show your worth. And Lord, may we give not only of our possessions, but give you the thanks and give you the glory that you deserve. May we truly have a heart of worship, not just Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, but every moment of every day. And I pray this in Jesus' name.